TechLawTracker.com. Hello, and welcome to Tech Law Tracker with me, your host, Margot Cruz. First off today, I wanted to tell you guys about an article I read about extending internet service to the far northern parts of New York State. Last week, I told you all about a bill, A02048, Um, That bill created a tax credit for ISPs expanding service to remote areas. And I was sort of Googling around about the subject, found this article that talked about the costs associated with building it out for a smaller provider. And I'm going to tell you about a bill in California that's super related to this. So in order to expand broadband service, which is done by physical wires, obviously, providers have to use other companies' poles, which are usually the ones that are already around for telephones and electricity and have to pay them rent for that space. For the broadband provider mentioned in this article, SLIC in New York, these rent costs come to between $10,000 and $14,000 per mile, and this comes out to about 40% of total operations costs. Also, the poles can be owned by more than one company, like National Grid and Verizon, so different rental fees need to be paid and negotiated, and different companies need to give their approval. So, obviously, this seems like a pretty complicated process. Unsurprisingly, this is an issue all over the country. And in California, it just so happens that there's a bill that recently made it through their Senate and Assembly, but was vetoed by their governor. And that bill is California State Senate Bill S-649. I'm just going to read to you out loud from Section 7, which which provides for full recovery by local government governments of the cost of attaching communications facilities to utility poles, street lights, and other suitable host infrastructure in a manner that is consistent with existing federal and state laws governing utility pole attachments generally and an additional charge of up to $250 for the small cell attachments to vertical infrastructure owned or operated or controlled by a city or county. And then, a little later in the bill, it outlines further what the city is allowed to charge for the use of such poles, which is not allowed to exceed the amount needed to, quote, provide the use of that infrastructure, which is strictly based on the cost of ownership, which I think means maintenance. And it says that if the rate charged creates revenues in excess of the actual costs, then the city or county will use the excess to reduce the rate. So, all in all, this means that the cost to telecommunications companies for expanding broadband service would be a fixed cost and would probably be, definitely be way below whatever market rate would be cho- would be charged if these companies were negotiating directly with the utilities. Which... Some people would probably love because it allows a fast rollout of service, or theoretically it does, and some people wouldn't love it. I saw one op-ed by a California mayor criticizing this bill because it created such low rates for telecoms companies, but did nothing to require big telecoms to provide service in remote areas, even though they would be saving all this money on the deployment of broadband to areas they actually do want to provide service in because it would be profitable for them. Theoretically, this bill would increase profit margins everywhere, but that's always theoretical. Either way, this bill was vetoed 
But that doesn't mean it won't show up again in future in California or in another state because existing telephone poles seem to be the main or only way to go for to get physical wired broadband outlays. There are interests in using wireless, cellular, and using cell towers to expand service in really remote areas, but it seems like the general consensus is those can never be fast enough unless density is super low, which it is. So it's a little bit of a back and forth. But there was a lot more stuff in this bill, this California bill, and I'd like to get back into it later. But for now, back to that article I was reading about New York State and the costs of expansion to remote areas over here. Another interesting note in this article was the taxes part, which I took note of because the bill I read last week, A02048, was a tax cut for expansion of broadband. According to this article, as an ISP only, as opposed to a cable provider, SLIC has to pay more taxes than a cable company like Spectrum would when expanding broadband services because Spectrum is taxed like a cable company, and I don't know exactly what that means. But I did think it was a funny problem to have because a small company providing a telecommunication service here is paying more than a similar company that just provides more services but it's taxed more for providing the same service. So that seemed a little strange. I obviously don't know anything about all these taxes yet. Maybe that tax cut will be helpful and hopefully for small businesses. So I wanted to tag that for future research. And I will, of course, post all of these bills and articles in the show notes on techlawtracker.com so you can read up on them yourself. So the other thing I wanted to do for this episode was get started with talking about the telecommunications omnibus bill, bill number A01958 or S02880, which I'm going to continue this discussion next episode, but there's just a few things that are important now. This bill's assembly sponsor is J. Gary Pretlow of the 89th District, which is just outside the Bronx and contains parts of Mount Vernon and Yonkers. And I got to say, this is one funny-looking shaped district. You can see on the map on the website, which I will post the link in the show notes, and it looks like the map just cherry-picked the wealthy neighborhoods of that area. And the Senate sponsor is S. Kevin S. Parker of the 21st District in Brooklyn. That district looks maybe a little less funky and seems to contain partly a very wealthy area, Park Slope, and a not-so-wealthy area, East Flatbush. And the edge is on Brownsville and East New York, which are definitely not well-to-do at all. But I'm very curious about how they make these maps. I know they use census data, but there's always more to the story. Anyway, like I said, I'm going to discuss this bill more next episode, but today there's just two things. First of all, I wanted to give you all the formal definition, at least in this bill and presumably in other bills too, of current and next generation broadband service. Because that was mentioned in the tax break bill on the previous episode, and I do not recall seeing a formal definition there, but I probably just missed it. So current generation broadband service means the transmission of signals at a rate of at least 1 million 
500,000 bits per second to the subscriber and at least 200,000 bits per second from the subscriber. So that's what's considered the standard right now for internet service. And next generation broadband service means the transmission of signals at a rate of at least 22 million bits per second to the subscriber, so going to your computer, and at least 10 million bits per second coming from the subscriber, so coming from your computer. So that's just in case you wanted to know how fast current and next generation broadband service is according to the law. This bill specifically. I would have to see if each bill defines it a little differently. Something else that jumped out to me in this bill was its net neutrality language and its discussion about it, which obviously has been a hot topic. This is section three of the justification section on the memo of this bill. So you'll see that on the website where if you select memo in the assembly version, you can view the memo, which is above the text of the bill. So I'm just going to read to you a little bit from the memo section. This proposal includes net neutrality language, whereby networks would not be able to favor one particular network destination or class of applications over others to ensure the free flow of ideas of the internet. It goes on to say later, net neutrality is not in itself a new idea. Its roots date back to the 1050s with the common carrier's legislation for telegraphs. Those laws made it unlawful for anyone owning or operating a telegraph line to refuse to receive dispatch from any other company or person owning or operating any telegraph line in the state or refuse or willfully neglect to transmit the same in good faith without partiality. This offense would result in the forfeiture of all right and franchises associated with telegraph transmission in the state. So I didn't know this about telegraphs or the laws around telegraphs, but apparently this has been around for a while. I think the basic idea of this is that if you're running a telegraph company, you can't refuse to process other people's telegraphs or telegraphs that have other affiliations with other companies. The other part of this, this uh, the next paragraph basically says that in, 20, in 2005, the Federal Communications Commission incorrectly decided that the common carrier status need not apply to telecommunications providers. I actually was not aware of this, and I thought that this was currently under debate, or more recently. I didn't know that this was a 2005 legislation, and I'm going to look more into this. There is no logical reason to overturn statuses that have worked for over 140 years. Our legislation will update an existing statute in order to ensure consumer protection and public safety by providing equal telecommunications access for all New Yorkers. So that's the gist of the memo section describing their net neutrality language. But in light of all the net neutrality discussions out there, I wanted to know what net neutrality language in a bill actually looks like, what the law would say about it, and what requirements this law would put on companies in order to maintain that net neutrality. So I looked through the bill. I found the section that I believe is the net neutrality section, and I'm going to read to you some parts of the bill. Of course, if you know more about this and you're listening, you should shoot me an email telling me what your thoughts are, what y if you know of another section of other bills where there's net neutrality language, would love to hear from you. So this is section six of the bill, but this would amend section 215 of the public service law 
by adding subdivision 14, and I'll read you some parts of that. So basically, this bill is a requirement that a cable television franchise agree within its franchise agreement to submit a written report yearly to its franchisee blocks and to the commission, which is detailed earlier in this bill. And this report would be a record of every time that the broadband provider or the cable television franchisee, which is providing the broadband, prevented a subscriber from accessing or limited a subscriber's access to different types of media online, which includes email, various internet sites or categories of sites. And it has to contain enough detail about the information blocked or site blocked that the commission can determine the nature of the blocking. But this information also has to be reasonably calculated to protect the identity of the subscriber or protect the privacy of the subscriber. And the subscriber is the individual that's whoever is using the internet, whoever's paying for the broadband service. This section goes on to say that nothing in this subdivision should be interpreted to restrict the rights of franchisees, aka broadband providers, if they so choose to block, limit, or otherwise restrict the passage of electronic mail messages, emails, or other content that transmit, portray, describe, or represent, or otherwise contain materials that are illegal or obscene. And that is left up to the subscriber excuse me, the franchisee. And those are listed in a non-exhaustive list as child pornography, other obscenity, death threats, threats to bodily harm, things that could harm the, the computer, hardware or software, or things that could harm the network. So as long as the broadband provider is blocking those things and the commission says that's okay, that would be an exception to the net neutrality requirement. And I think the thing that brings this all together is a sentence near the end that says, blocking or limitation of subscriber access to the maximally diverse internet if not predicated upon the franchisee's right to defend its network and subscribers against, quote, network threats, which would be those things listed above, shall presumptively be a breach of the franchise. So that would mean that it would not be able to operate as a franchisee anymore and a network provider, I would assume. I thought it was interesting that the method for maintaining net neutrality was actually a report submitted instead of some other sort of law, but I don't know exactly how else one would go about it because I am learning about this too. So if you are a person who is listening, who knows a lot about this, I would love to hear more. This has obviously been a big issue in the news recently, and I was very curious about the way the actual law sought to enforce net neutrality. So maybe it's different in other states, or maybe there are different methods of writing net neutrality provisions into bills, and I will definitely be curious to follow those and see if other states have different types. And if I've said anything incorrect in this episode or future episodes or past episodes, also please let me know. I'm always open to hearing feedback and criticism because I'm just a student reading these bills and learning as I go.
I hope everyone's been having a very Halloweeny week, and you will hear me on the next episode of Tech Law Tracker with me, your host, Marco Cruz. Tech Law Tracker dot com.